This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Joe Biden knows he must work harder and faster than any president since FDR, and he doesn't have 100 days to launch his initiatives. He's got to set the tone in more like 10. That's what John Nichols says. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. We reached him today at home in Madison. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, my friend. Well, we're at the end of week one of the Biden presidency. I guess you could call it the best week in four years. Uh, There were all those executive orders undoing the worst of Trump's executive orders. Already, Biden has stopped construction of the border wall, ended the Muslim travel ban, canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, and rejoined the World Health Organization. But of course, we have this double crisis, the pandemic and the economic collapse. And uh, we need to start with the pandemic economic stimulus, 1.9 trillion, starting with that additional $1,400 check COVID relief for all families. Uh, Where do we stand on that today? Not where we should be. Uh, Look, as you point out, the executive orders have been uh, aggressive, well-drawn, appropriate. Uh, I give Joe Biden a lot of credit for that. And every indication when I talk to Biden administration folks and others is that they're going to keep right on going. They'll keep doing executive orders wherever they can uh, at a very, very rapid rate, more than any new president in the history of the country. However, you do reach the point where you need money uh, because executive orders can't allocate money. They can maybe maybe move a little bit of it around, but you've got to get the Congress into action. And as of now, the Congress has been slow to act. They're, they're Uh, certainly is a sense of urgency on the part of many Democrats. Uh, No question of that. And maybe even a few Republicans. But they haven't come together in a coherent way, Uh, frankly, in the way that they they could have and should have uh, in the last couple of days. And instead, there's been a wrangling over organization of the Senate, uh, you know, how to set up committees and things of that nature. There's been a lot of talk about impeachment, which, by the way, I think is entirely appropriate to have the trial and to go forward with it, but there hasn't been that 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 kind of fast movement. And in fact, what we're starting to see is a growing number of Republican members uh, start to object to the ambitions of the $1.9 trillion stimulus to say that they think it's too much, that it isn't targeted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every excuse you can imagine. And so I, I've got to tell you, I, I do think that Biden's got a fight on his hands there. He can get this. He can get it. But it's not going to come easily. The additional $1,400 has massive popular support. It's kind of amazing that Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, a couple of weeks ago said it, it, this was a no-go as far as he was concerned. But there's been a lot of pushback in West Virginia, I understand. And he stepped back from that position a little bit, but Biden wants to 
uh, not send the $1,400 up as a single thing that could pass tomorrow and get checks into people's hands right away. He wants to combine it with a lot of other things that Republicans are less enthusiastic about uh, passing, in, including uh, hundreds of billions of dollars for state and local governments, increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, uh, spending more money on schools, on vaccine production, on increased testing. We desperately need all this stuff right now, but it looks like the strategy that the Democrats are taking is going to delay all this until we get to that thing called budget reconciliation. You are correct. And uh, look, this is sort of a, a really terrible situation to be in uh, because there's no question that actually it's not the $1,400. It's frankly, we need a $2,000 check and we don't need it just for one you know, instance. We need it as Ro Khanna and Tim Ryan, the congressman from Ohio, Ro Khanna from California, Tim Ryan from Ohio have proposed since last April that you do $2,000 a month uh, for those who are in need and frankly uh, in a relatively universal model uh, because it's, it's absurd not to. This is the way that A, you stimulate the economy, B, uh, you help people to feed their families, keep in their homes, Just, you address so many of the broader challenges. And, and so we're still kind of nickel and diming it on, on the, even the $2,000, as you say, note the $1,400. Uh, the conundrum here is that, that what Biden and to a lesser extent Schumer are saying is not irrational. Uh, while you need the, the $2,000 checks and you probably could get them or get some variation thereon uh, relatively quickly, uh, if you delink that from the rest of the package, you end up in a situation where it is clear that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans and some of your more centrist Democrats might start to, to refuse. And we cannot afford to have local and state governments collapse. That's the danger that, that's really kind of at the heart of this thing. You can probably get pandemic money, you know, and money for vaccinations. That's gonna be a fight, but you can probably get that. But getting the funding for state and local governments has been just a terrible challenge. It's absurd that it is. And I cannot begin to emphasize to you how important that is because it's state and local government that provides the frontline services and, and a tremendous amount of the public health uh, programs and, and public health delivery around the country. So we're in a really tough bargaining position here. Uh, and I doubt that Biden and Schumer are going to cut loose the $2,000 or the $1,400, whatever amount you go to. Uh, and that's frustrating and it's challenging. I don't think they have a lot of time to play around with this though. And so, I, as I've said in, in other conversations, I think we're getting very quickly uh, to the point where Joe Biden should go on television nationally, do an address to the nation, separate and apart from his inaugural address of just a few days and say, look, you know, we are in an urgent circumstance. Here's why, here's what I think we need to do. And, you know, I always say he should borrow a page from Franklin Roosevelt, who uh, obviously did the fireside chats. But frankly, when I'm talking about an address to the nation, I'm borrowing a page from Ronald Reagan. That's something that Reagan was very good at. Uh, and it's why, as a president who didn't have the best position in Congress, remember, he had a Democratic House and a 
Republican Senate uh, through much of his tenure, uh, he would go to the American people, lay out the case, and create the pressure to get what he needed. I think Biden's going to have to do that. And frankly, uh, as again, as you noted, I've been saying that the first 10 days are definitional. I wouldn't mind at all if Joe Biden did that tonight. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, there's a huge divide in America right now between the people like you and me who can work at home on their computers um, and the working class people, many of them people of color who have to go to work, who work driving trucks and at factories and at stores, stocking grocery store shelves. And those people don't have much of a choice. They need the money. Um, and there is this crucial intersection that is, Biden is just beginning to take action around that's so important, which is getting OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to enforce workplace safety rules that protect workers from exposure to the COVID virus. Uh, OSHA under Trump, of course, didn't do anything to protect workers, especially from COVID. There's been no enforceable standards like requiring that employers provide masks, uh, requiring six feet of distance between workers on, for instance, packing house assembly lines, no serious investigations of, of companies or uh, sites, plants where there have been big outbursts of the of the disease. You might think ordering the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to enforce safety and health rules would not be a big deal. But unfortunately, it is. And it looks like Biden is getting started on that. Yeah, it, it's stunning that that this would even be up for debate. This is something that uh, Eugene Scalia, the Secretary of Labor, uh, was was asked to do back in the spring of 2020 as the pandemic was starting to to take off, and and it's it's a plea that was made by uh, Democratic senators and others a long time ago, and you had resistance from you know not just Trump but but his key players in his administration, and it it doesn't end there. There's another executive order that Biden has done. Uh, as regards public transportation, that you know you've got to wear masks on public transportation, it, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but it's amazing to me that we're almost a year into this thing and we're just getting that order now. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's astounding, and and I've covered this a lot over the last you know eight nine months. Uh, you know, bus drivers and transit, the transit unions that represent bus drivers as well as unions that represent flight attendants and others. They were writing letters to Elaine Chow, who is Secretary of Transportation, and others saying, you know, use your authority here. Use your regulatory power to step up and, and you know, make these protections. The Trump administration is, is, you know, just its record on this is so deeply, deeply immoral. It's not just, not just wrong and practically troublesome. It was deeply immoral. They resisted because that would have required them to tell some in the private sector, and frankly, even some in the public sector, to do the right thing, to just you know, follow through on this. And, uh, and I think we have to recognize that it's not just Trump, but it was the whole of his administration, all of this infrastructure of government that wasn't working. What Biden now has to do is to get that infrastructure of government working fast and smart, and there is a lot he can do without Congress, 
But here's one of the conundrums. He, his cabinet picks, his Secretary of Transportation, his Secretary of Labor, these people have to be approved by the Senate. And it's not as if you can't start to get action on some of these executive orders, but what you desperately need is to have Marty Walsh in there at the, at the Department of Labor, to have um, you know, Pete Buttigieg in at Transportation so that they can you know, lead from the top in a big, bold way. And so we again have this intersection, right? Biden doing a lot of the right stuff, but a real need for Congress to step up. Two other key people, we need the Senate to confirm right away the Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland and the Homeland Security Secretary uh, designate Alejandro Mayorkas. We need an Attorney General because he appoints the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, and he's the one who's going to prosecute the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And we need the Secretary of Homeland Security to launch investigations of domestic terrorists and white nationalists and neo-Nazis and anti-government militias, not to mention cyber terrorism and uh, immigration enforcement. Those are two very urgent needs we have uh, right now. Yeah, they are incredibly urgent needs. And, and you do get to this, this kind of deeper reality that uh, I think you could stop the first hundred people on the street and say, after what happened on January 6th, with the ongoing threats that we face, with all of the broader challenges, separate and apart from those, um, you need an attorney general, you need a, a Department of Homeland Security secretary in place from the start. This is much like your your need for national security folks to be in place because of you know all the international concerns domestically these are people that you want to have uh, up and running right away and uh, and it's especially urgent right now and again ask 100 people on the street they'd say yeah of course that's that's the most logical thing in the world and yet we have tremendous resistance from republicans in the senate uh it, including some who are actually opposing you know these nominations key players who are doing so and um and they are their reasons for doing so are just atrocious almost beyond belief ron johnson the senator from wisconsin uh, uh among others had said oh, well i don't want to start approving your nominations if you're going to pursue uh the impeachment trial against donald trump mm. right and it's sort of like it's a trade-off here i i don't want to have Account I, I'm willing to give you some nominations if you don't demand accountability for the guy who incited insurrection against the United States. And uh, they need to be called out on this, quite frankly. I've got a, a piece on, that'll go up in the nation in the next few days on Josh Hawley and, and the senator from Missouri, who, terrible player, right? Awful player leading into January 6th. And he continues to be an obstructionist on some of these nominations and other things. And so uh, what we really have is a situation, again, you know, I said it a few minutes ago that that there's a pretty good argument for Joe Biden to do an address to the nation as regards uh, the need for the stimulus. It, we could also talk about the need for an address to the nation as regards the obstruction of people whose job it is to keep us safe. You know, this is this is a problematic situation. And uh, I do think that it's important to argue or to point out at this point that uh, this is how Mitch McConnell and the Republicans so often get their way. 
It's the kind of chipping away and slowing down, making it hard to do every little thing. And if Biden doesn't call them out for that at a very early stage in the process and doesn't find you know, critical junctures at which to highlight it and to challenge it, uh, he runs the very real risk of ending up where, quite frankly, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama ended up, you know, kind of struggling even to achieve baseline necessary action with resistant uh, Republicans in the Senate. So your mention of January 6th takes us, of course, to the question of impeachment. Monday this week, the House delivered its impeachment article to the Senate. The trial there will now begin to be organized. Trial itself will begin on February 9th, about two weeks from now. Uh, you spoke uh, with Jamie Raskin, the Democrats' lead manager of uh, Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate. What's his argument about why this is necessary? Yeah, it's. I, I often recommend that people read what I write. Um, <laughs> but I would especially suggest it on the interview with Jamie Raskin because it's such a powerful conversation. We spoke on the yeah. day that the House voted to impeach. And uh, as I think listeners are aware, uh, Jamie Raskin's son committed suicide uh, at the end of last year, a very traumatic moment. And Tommy Raskin is a brilliant young man who we remember um, as, as, among other things, a, a very young Nation magazine contributor. Mm. Um, uh, you know, that weighed on, on Jamie Raskin. On the January 6th, he brought members of his family with him because he was going to be involved in this debate. And he talks about how they found themselves, uh, you know, literally sheltering in place with uh, people banging on doors 20 feet away from where they were, threatening, threatening them and, and their safety. And so, as he says, it was a, it was a terrifying and, and, and profound moment. And in that profound moment, Literally, as he was sheltering on that day, Jamie Raskin, a constitutional scholar, started sketching out uh, in his own mind the argument for impeachment, a second impeachment of Donald Trump. And uh, Jamie Raskin is unapologetic and unwavering uh, in his argument that this impeachment trial must go forward and it must lead to conviction of Donald Trump. Uh, for all of the reasons that you might imagine, but then also for a, a number of other reasons. And, and he speaks about it, I think, very powerfully. Uh, if you do not hold someone like Donald Trump to account for what he did for insurrection, for incitement to insurrection, uh, when will we ever use impeachment? When will we ever use the power of accountability? And so this is such a critical point at which to assert the authority that we have and then a second argument that he makes, which I think is one that gets lost in the mix, is that the Congress of the United States is, should be the first branch. It is the branch that ought to be guiding government uh, at so many levels. We've moved so much to an imperial presidency that people don't even recognize that anymore. And so one of the things that Jamie Raskin talks about is to, the need to reassert the role of Congress not just in this impeachment fight, which he will be at the center of in the coming weeks, but also in the months and years to come so that, that we don't end up in this situation again where an imperial president thinks that he or she can do whatever they want uh, without fearing any kind of accountability. 
Yeah, your new piece in The Nation has a wonderful quote that I want to read that really explains the whole thing. The President of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the President. The President could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. There has never been a greater betrayal by a President of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. Now, it wasn't Jamie Raskin who said that. Who said that? Jamie Raskin does quote that. In fact, he's committed it to memory. That is a quote from Liz Cheney, the third-ranking Republican in the U.S. House of Representatives who broke with their caucus and voted for impeachment. She is, of course, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. I wrote a pretty nasty biography of Dick Cheney about <laughs> 15 years ago. Um, and I never really thought that I would be in solidarity with a Cheney. Uh, but the fact is, as Jamie Raskin points out, Liz Cheney stepped up and did what every Republican should do. And that is recognize the high crimes and misdemeanors of Donald Trump. John Nichols on Joe Biden's first week, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Great to have you on the show. Great pleasure to be with you, my friend. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.